welcome, dear hearers, to episode 19. I've got it right this week, Mason. Episode 19 of Millsy and Mason's Football Hootenanny. We have got a slobber knocker of an episode coming up for you. And I can't wait for us to get into it. So, Mason, do you want to give us the run through of what the hearers can expect today? Yep, sure, I will do, Millsy. We've got, in very sad news, actually, we've got our last ever episode of Anorak versus Anorak. Honestly, I'll be happy to see the back of that thing, uh, which <laughs> might give you an inkling as to what's going to happen today. But anyway, sorry, I digress. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, but before that, we've got, a, we've got a guest on, haven't we? What are we going to be talking about? I believe we're going to be talking to avillafan.com, ah. specifically Mr. Nick, about... Steven Gerrard joining Aston Villa. Breaking news today, wasn't it? So a very interesting topic. We're going to go all into that. I wanted to ask Bo Millsy, how have you been? How's your week been? We don't ask you that anymore. No, it, it's not very often anyone asks me that anymore, Mason. Um, oh. If I could play the world's sm- smallest violin, then then I, I would be right now. But, um, you know, it's, it's been um, okay. I mean, as the hearers know, I'm a United fan, so... It's not been great the past month or so, I think, on, on a footballing stage. How, how are things for you, Mason? I don't think I've ever asked you how, how you've been. Things are very rosy in the Mason household. In fact, I did find out that Mason Senior, being my father, listens to the Hootenanny while sitting in a hot tub. Well, how the other half live, eh, Mason? I know, I know. That's Bournemouth for you. Anyway, should we crack on? I think we should. Uh, I think we should get directly into it with avilfan.com. And also, perhaps you can listen out for another voicemail that we have received in in, in the middle of there. Um, and I think that we should give out some sort of prize to the first person who sends us a message with the amount of times we use the word Grealish. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Millsy and Mason football who's nanny badge. The fabled Millsy and Mason football hootenanny badge will go to the first person who messages messages us with how many times we say the name Grealish. Okay, but before we get into that very quickly, Millsy, I think we've got some social accounts, right? Indeed we do. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. We are there at Facebook, Twitter or Instagram.com forward slash Millsy and Mason. It's pretty easy to find us if you use those search terms. So uh, come check us out. Um, also check out avillafan.com they are on twitter they are a website um so check them out i think that probably does it for the social media references i think it's probably time to get into it and here we are ladies and gentlemen the interview you've all been waiting for this week we are speaking with nick from avillafan.com nick welcome to the podcast please tell us who you are and why the hell you are here Evening, guys. So, yeah, I'm Nick Sanders. I write for avillafan.com. been writing for the website for several years now. Um, it's a website that features things like match previews, player articles, um, historical features in terms of what we've grown up with supporting Aston Villa. Um, it's got a forum and plenty of social media content as well. Um, we're in the early process at the moment of trying to set up a podcast as well and jump on that, that bandwagon. The role itself, it's led to lots of opportunities for myself. So um, I've been regularly interviewed by BBC local radio stations, both in the West Midlands and Hereford and Worcester. Um, and then on top of that, I'm really fortunate to have a seat on the Aston Villa fan group committee. So there's 12 of us that represent the club. Um, we get to meet with people like Christian Perslow, the CEO. Um, I actually met the new owners the day that they took over. So it's been quite a sort of 
rise to fame really doing what we're doing i've loved every minute of it um and it just builds loads of different opportunities each and every week um aside from the podcast i've been a season ticket holder down at villa now since 1994 and other than that really day to day away from football i'm a teacher myself um and i run a charity football team around chasing after a three-year-old so it's quite a busy time really cool and um we heard you're running some sort of some sort of charity cup is that right are you allowed to talk about that yeah, yeah. So um, the well, the shirt I'm actually wearing at the moment, you guys can see, is the team that I manage. I run a team called Nightingale Football Club. We set up in, um, it's about April 2020 was our first set of fixtures, but we set up during the, the first couple of months of lockdown, really. As soon as lockdown was mentioned, we wanted to try and come up with a way to give people something to look forward to during the, the, the depths of being stuck at home and everything else. So we decided to come up with a football team that purely raises money for NHS charities together and the Royal Orthopaedic Hospital, which is in Birmingham, where a lot of our players are from. Um, and it was just a case of booking fixtures, and we weren't obviously allowed to play. So it was a bit of an odd time, and people were saying, what was stupid time to set up a football team? You can't really play, you can't do anything, so what's the point? But it was a case of getting it off the ground. And I remember the first night we put it out there, woke up the following morning, we'd got like 80, 90-odd people who wanted to come to trials um, from all over the West Midlands, and it's just exploded. I think we're six months down the line from our first game. We've raised just shy of £15,000. Uh, we've played, we've been up to Glasgow Rangers, Legends away. We played Bradley Lowry Foundation in Newcastle. Um, and then off the back of that, set up the National Affinity Charity Cup, which has just been sanctioned by the Football Association. Um, and we've got 64 charity teams across the UK who are competing in a knockout cup. But every game is also a fundraiser for retrospective charities. So it's been a it's been a bit of a whirlwind couple of years, to be honest. Fantastic. That, I mean, that all sounds awesome. Is there, is there any way we can watch any of those uh, matches from the cup when it happens? Are they going to be streamed at all or...? Yeah, some, some of the different teams involved in it, if you actually follow the National Affinity Cup on social, so if you just go onto Twitter and put in, I think it's under at N Affinity Cup, on there you'll see the content in terms of who's involved. Obviously, we're very new to it, but it's, I mean, we've raised, I think, about £7,000 just off the first round of that competition with a couple of fixtures left to play. Um, unfortunately, my lads were knocked out in the first round by the Hart Foundation, but we'll quickly gloss over that one. Um, <laughs> and then if you go through uh, my own team's page, um, night, it's at Nightingale FC, um, we've actually got a Twitch channel and we're looking at trying to upgrade that next year just to get even more live stream games. Brilliant. When you mentioned the uh, Hart Foundation, I'm thinking the uh, Bret Hart and Owen Hart from the WWE, but I assume you oh, mean the charity. Unfortunately, yeah, we're the, the charity, <laughs> but I'm, you know, I'm a big wrestling fan as a kid, so uh, definitely with you on that one. Good stuff. Okay, we'll try not to take the, the podcast to a wrestling tangent. We've done it with bowling <laughs> before and it didn't go down too well, so we'll try and stick with football today. <laughs> Shall we kick things off and talk about Villa? That's why we're yeah. here. Yeah, on that note, I think we should get on to Villa. Um, I, I, I guess the first thing that, that we, we should talk about is uh, the transfer window where I think Dean Smith's reign probably changed. You know, that's where, where it probably took a turn. Grealish leaving. How was that for you as, as Villa fans? Um, were you supportive of him leaving? I mean, obviously... You must have thought, like, you, if he had stayed, you would have built a team around him and maybe progress. Did you feel, however, safe in the knowledge that he was leaving and you were getting some money to build the team around? What was the feelings like? Really, really difficult question. And I've had a few people ask me this recently. And I still find it really hard to, to weigh up my exact feelings over it. First and foremost, when we mentioned Dean Smith, I think the bloke is, I mean, every Villa fan will say it, an absolutely great guy, first and foremost. Um, we'd been through a period of 
massive turbul- uh, turbulence. We were we were practically an embarrassment. We were 16th in the championship. We'd spent an awful lot of money on players that weren't cutting it at championship level. You know, paying 15 million pounds for the like of Ross McCormack, who's now playing, I believe, in something like tier six. And we were two or three points away from relegation to League One. You know, we'd just come off the back of having um, an owner that was going to run the club into the ground. And we're fortunate that we got the owners that we've got in now through NSWE. But all the hard work that's gone in, all the progression and everything else, I think it was a massive turning point with Grealish going. And for me, the biggest problem was the timing of it. I think as a fan of the club for as long as I've been, if it had been open and honest and said he was going early on in the summer, just before England and everything else, I'd have probably accepted it a little bit more. But I think the fact that it dragged out as long as it did, and then there were the rumours towards the end of the summer, just before he moved, that, oh, he might be staying, and then all the photos of him training with the club and everything else, I think it stretched it out and it brought a lot of false hope. So then to have that dashed away so late, it was really difficult. I think we ended up you know, bringing in Danny Ings the way we did. It was done to try and appease the fans. But when you weigh up the two, you're never, ever going to replace a loss as big as someone like Jack Grealish. Um, money-wise, incredible to, to bring somebody through the club that's not cost us anything as a player. And then to make 100 million speaks for itself. And I know he's. it seems like he's struggling a little bit up there. But it, it's been a real hard one to take. And it, it's hard to weigh up whether I'm supportive of what he's done. I get why he's done it to a degree. But I do think you're starting to see already how difficult it's going to be from up there to have the the sense of leading a team like he did at Villa. Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to replace a player like that. But um, Dean Smith certainly tried, spent over £80 million on Brendia, Bailey and Danny Ng. So quite a lot of investment. I mean, the team's been hurt with some injuries as well, especially to, to Ings and... Um, Bailey and then Brendy has not really been firing on all, on all cylinders. So what do you think about the new signings? Are you happy with them? I know Danny Ings, you mentioned it was possibly a bit of a rush job, but in general, are you happy with the transfers in? I think on the face of things, the fact that the club acted quickly as as they did showed the intent still there, you know, and having met the owners myself and everything that they've said so far, they've sort of followed through with. Um, and I do think there's a lot of ability there. I think it's just been like you say, there's been issues with injuries. It's been hard to get all three in the team consistently. I think Smith pointed to that um, in his leaving speech the other day. That I think they've had 35 minutes together with all three on the pitch. We've seen glimpses of what all of them can do individually in certain games, but we're just not seeing the consistency there. Um, the one for me that's been a bit of a, a puzzle has been Ings. You know, three goals, two assists on the face of it looks good in a side that's struggling. But there just doesn't seem to be any sort of blend between him and Watkins, which we were thinking was going to be a real ruthless partnership. And obviously with the managerial change that's coming this week as well, which mentioning a bit, I kind of feel they've got to try and shake things up. They've got to try and find a way to make both of those work because really either player isn't a bench player and either player is going to want to be starting week in, week out. Yeah, I mean, the season as as a whole so far, so I mean, pretty pretty good start to be fair. Um, in the first six games, one three, drew one, lost two, and, and ended that period with a win against Manchester United. But since then, obviously five losses in a row, I believe. Yep. So what what has gone wrong, I guess, recently as opposed to the start of a season? If I'm really honest with you, I kind of feel like the issue's been there from the start of the season and results-wise has maybe glossed over the way that we've been playing. And as somebody that goes home and away, it, it, it's not been great football and I haven't seen that progression or that level of intensity that we showed last year, whether it's the fans coming back, having some play in it. Um, Watford, first game of the season, a lot of players playing the first game, thrown in late on. We were absolutely battered in that game and managed to make the score look a little bit more respectable, but it could have easily been four or five. 
And then if you look at all the games that we've lost this year, I think I can't remember the numbers off the top, top of my head, but I think it's something like five of the six or seven games that we've lost. We've conceded at least three goals in all of those games. This is from a team that was um, touted for how well their defence was last year. Second best defence in the Premier League, second most clean sheets in the Premier League. All of a sudden, defence looks woeful. And I do wonder if that's also to do with the um, departure of John Terry as well, mm-hmm. so late in the summer as well. Yeah, that was a little bit of a surprise, really. What was behind that, do you, do you think, behind Terry leaving? I mean, maybe he wants to go and coach a club, but as far as I know, he hasn't taken over one yet, correct? Yeah, this is the thing. I think, for me, as soon as he said he was thinking of leaving or he was on his way out, we all expected him to be appointed somewhere within the coming weeks. I know Swansea was available at the time, Nottingham Forest he was touted with, but as far as... I've seen from sort of the media accounts and the people that we're in contact with. I don't actually think he went for any interviews at any of those clubs. So it's all been very odd. And then the Celtic mentioned, but you keep seeing him post on Instagram that he's doing his coaching things at home. He's doing stuff to do with his license, everything else. And I do think when you've got somebody of that magnitude in the dressing room, and again, going back to Dean Smith, lovely guy, but when you weigh up John Terry and Dean Smith, if you're a young footballer coming through, the age of some of these lads that are coming through, I know they'll, they'll have been growing up thinking about as a footballer. You know, Dean Smith had quite a low league sort of background as a player, done really well to work his way and cut his teeth in the Premier League. But someone like uh, like John Terry just commands respect and the back line just looks completely lost this year. Just um, going back to the, the, the summer transfer window a, a second, because as you said, you are a, a bit of an insider with the owners. So maybe you'll give a very diplomatic answer to this. As I mentioned, I'm, I'm a United fan. Simon, thanks for mentioning the 1-0 win over us earlier, by the way. We'll brush over that very quickly. Um, but but as I say, our relationship, our poor relationship with the owners is pretty well publicised. What is the, the relationship between Villa fans and their owners and, and the owners? And um, I mean, the, the fact that they also, I mean, the decision to sell Grealish would have come from from them, I guess, or from at least the the, the higher ups at the club. Did that affect your relationship then with the ownership in any way? Or, or what's the current situation in terms of views on the ownership? I, th- I think any Villa fan that you ask will be more than complimentary about what NSWE have done. I think Nasser Suiris and, and Wes Edens themselves, literally from day one, presented themselves in an incredible manner. I mean, let's not forget, I don't think people realise how close Villa were to, to actually going bust. And it wasn't actually pushed that much in the news to the, how close it really was. Since then, there's been documentaries that you can see online and everything else um, around the fact that the previous owner wasn't actually the owner of the club. He was a face for somebody else that had invested into the club. And when you look at the finances of what was going on behind that, Villa were literally 24 hours from being wound up. So these guys coming in, like saving the club at the 11th hour and you know setting out a goal of getting back into the Premier League within a couple of years and doing that within six months... Um, first big decision was when Steve Bruce left, having to bring in somebody to appease the fans. Dean Smith came in and the one thing that he did do was restore a massive unity between the, the, the fans and the club, which had been missing for some time. And this goes back to two, three years before we were relegated. And I think it probably goes back to when Martin O'Neill left. It was a real sort of turbulent eight, nine years. But we're more than happy with what they've done. You know, everything that they've said they'll do, they've backed up. I think the sale of Grealish... Ultimately, he's got to come down to what he wants to do. If you've got a player that doesn't want to play for you, you've got to weigh up whether that's the image you want to carry with your club. I think the thing that disappointed me more than anything is that when they did the kit launch, there was the whole Grealish sat in the stand, kissing the badge, trying to bleed claret and blue. And then a week later, he's off to Man City. And 
I kind of feel like that's why I said earlier, if they knew he wanted to go, and that was alluded to by Christian Perslow, who I'll come on to in a minute, I think that it was a massive PR mistake because, again, it was leading us down the path of where he wants to stay. If he wanted to go, to get £100 million for him, I like the fact that they dig their heels in. Any player that moves on, they've all got a resellable value. We've actually got a club now where all the players that we've bought in, we know that we can sell on for a lot more. John McGinn, £2.5 million. I don't think Celtic wanted to pay an extra £2 million to take him there. And he was a lifelong Celtic fan. I think it shows the kind of calibre of what these owners are. They want to get players in that they can sell on at a high, much higher value if they do go and supplement that with the youth team, which is doing incredibly well this season. So you've alluded to mention Dean Smith a couple of times. So let's talk about him a little bit. Obviously, a couple of seasons with Villa, uh, one promotion from the championship via the playoffs and then 17th and 11th in the Premier League. So a, a decent start to his career or his whole career, as it turned out. What was the reaction of the fans, I guess, initially in terms of him actually leaving before we then talk a little bit about his, what he's done in this three seasons? I think it's been building up and in previous interviews with other people and the other people that we speak to, I think more and more people will start to jump on that bandwagon of, you know, I think it might be the time for him. And it was it, it was a really difficult one in all the years I've supported the club. This has been one of the most difficult times in terms of seeing a manager go because we know how much the club means to him. And if there's one person that wants to turn things around, there's not going to be anybody more than Dean Smith that, that wants to do that. Lifelong Villa fan, family of Villa fans, lives in the area. And he's just, like I said before, having met him a couple of times, you don't feel like you're in the presence of someone that's looking down on you or he's too big for their boots. Still a local boy who wants to speak to everybody. But if I sort of weigh up again, results, everything else, I don't want to keep mentioning him. I, was, I swore, swore to myself I wasn't going to mention Jack Grealish tonight. But <laughs> if you actually look at Dean Smith's record, and this goes back into the Championship, I've got the numbers in front of me now. And whenever he's had a game without Jack Grealish playing, the stats are frightening. So it's 40 games played. One nine, drew 11, lost 20. And you work that out points per game. That's relegation going back for the last four or five seasons in the Premier League. And that includes, as I say, championship runs. I think Grealish was such a massive part in getting us up. Yeah, he brought the, the club together. He's improved players, undoubtedly. But the quality of the football this season just hasn't been there. And I know the owners want to complete... They want to progress each year. They're pumping a lot of money in. I think we're the third highest net spend club over the last couple of years. And that's also with the 100 million put in for Grealish. It shows what they want to do and they, they obviously want to return on the investment they're putting in. Yeah, and, and presumably they want to see improvements in, in performances every year and, and season um, end results, right? So to finish, it, perhaps it was a poison chalice with, with finishing so high last season, right? To finish 11th, the, the expectation is going to be to improve upon that the following season. And, and maybe, you know, if he would have only finished 15th last season, would it have been such a high expectation this season? That's the hard thing. I think Villa fans are notoriously the worst for it. I think we're one of those clubs that a lot of teams, I think it's similar to like your Leeds and other teams out there, they're almost a team that other teams like to take the mick out of a little bit. And I know the whole thing of, you know, we were very lucky to stay up thanks to, I don't want to mention it in front of a Bournemouth fan, but the VAR incident and everything uh, else. You were coming. But, I didn't uh, want to mention it. <laughs> it it's got to be dropped in there and that's coming from a Villa fan. But I think that's the margins of how close we've been a couple of times. Like, Getting promoted, went to playoffs, nearly messed it up against West Brom. He was really living on the edge. Derby, final, let a goal in with a couple of minutes to go, nearly threw that away. Stayed up by the skin of our teeth. So it, it's always been exciting because it's been on the edge. But in terms of the, the amount of money they're putting in, I understand it takes a lot of money to get yourself consolidated in the Premier League. But I think last year, I think we were spoiled. You know, to beat Liverpool 7-2. To beat Arsenal 3-0 away, beat them at home, you know, beat some of the teams up at the top, Chelsea as well, just before they won the European Cup. 
we were really sport last year, but at the same time, we were obviously missing being there. And I do think with the fans going back, that naturally adds that little bit more pressure as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Mason, do you want to add any more on the on the reign of Dean Smith or should we move on? I guess the only other thing to mention is the fact that he actually got a runners-up medal, right, in the EFL Cup uh, 2019-20, which is which is a big achievement for. I mean, for most teams, that they would definitely see a runners-up medal as a big achievement. I don't know, from your opinion, Nick, whether that was seen as a as a positive thing or is it always just a disappointment because it wasn't a victory at the end of the day? No, I think again, in a season where we were struggling, I think. To, to get promoted and first off stay up, but then also get to a cup final as well. That, nothing should be taken away from that. And it was a massive achievement. I think when you play in Man City in the final, I think we'd all sort of gone down there looking forward to the day, had fun down there, but we also had that sort of air of understanding that we were probably going to end up losing that game. And to end up losing just 2-1, and I think we had a save from, I think Engels had a header that was tipped off the line late on, and it could have, could have even gone to extra time. I think it spoke volumes about the spirit of the team. And it was a massive achievement, but again, when we kick on to this year, there just doesn't seem to have been much improvement across the team so far, whether that's due to the injuries or whatever else. I think uh, last year we, or, and the year before, we were probably spoiled a little bit. Moving on to the big new appointment that we all we all found out about today. Where were you when you found out, by the way? Um, well, I, I sort of had an inkling it was going to happen throughout the week. Um, so apart from Sporting Villa, I've got, and this goes back to when my dad was still around. Um, he passed away sort of 10 years ago and he was a massive Villa fan but also loved Rangers and it's been passed through the family. So this week's been very odd sort of seeing a manager from one club that I really love moving to like the club that I love more than anything. But yeah, I was at work today. So I was in the middle of a lesson and it's one of those where you're not supposed to be using your phone, but um, couldn't help it. My phone was going off every two seconds and it was like, right kids, get on with your work. Quickly look down at the desk. And there was the photo of Morgan at the Villa shirt. And it was just, just a really odd feeling really. It's seeing somebody that you've grown up with, with, you know, his name on the back of an England shirt, all of a sudden managing your club. I guess you maybe followed Rangers a little bit then. Um, what do you think he might bring tactically then to Villa? I mean, what, 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 what is there is there something sort of that has stood out that Dean Smith has not been doing tactically this season that you think Gerard might do, or, or some someone that's not being picked that you think should be being picked? What, what are your expectations? I guess I think it's it's not so much what Dean Smith hasn't done. Because, you know, he's tried different things out. He's been unlucky with injuries. I don't think we've had a consistent week where we've had two teams or, or two weeks where we've had the same team playing. Um, the five at the back thing's been a big discussion across the, the fan base in terms of whether it works, who needs to play in the back three. Courtney Howe's not getting much up, many opportunities considering whenever he comes in, he seems to do quite a decent job. Tyro Ming's nowhere near the standard of what we know he can do. And it did kind of feel like the players, I must say, I do feel like the players have down tools in recent weeks. It's almost like the hiding behind the fact that Smith could go. But I think it's more about what Gerard can bring that fits him with how the club is at the moment. And the one thing I would say is, loves to bring youth through. Obviously worked with the youth team at Liverpool before we moved to um, Rangers. Didn't have a lot of money to spend at Rangers, so was having to bring through either youth players from the club or loanee signings, like uh, when he brought in Ryan Kent. And um, You look at how much he's spent. In two years, he was up two, three years, he was up there. The last two years, I looked earlier, he'd spent something like £15 million. Pounds. I mean, £15 million pounds over two years. A lot of the signings that he bought in were frees and loans. And I just think with the, the squad that Villa have got, they've got an incredible side. I think it's really ballsy of him to come down here. I think because it's it's one of those where he is probably using it as a stepping stone to Liverpool. I think it would be fools not to sort of see that that's what he wants to do. But when he does come down, it's... He could easily have stayed at Rangers and won another league. He's coming into a, a club where difficult set of fixtures coming up. 
They've got to start turning things around before Christmas. He'll have that one transfer window to try and bring in some players. And he's got to get them turning around. But I do think it's a really good squad that he's inheriting. And there's no reason why he can't get them firing. And if you're a midfielder walking in the changing room and you've got Steven Gerrard looking at you, you know what I mean? There's nobody better to learn off. Yeah, and I think one of the most interesting questions for me on, on this appointment is whether it's the right time for him to come down, right? So you've alluded to that just now. I mean, he finished second, second, and then first in the league last season, 25, 25 points above Celtic and stopping their like 10th consecutive titles. So that was a huge achievement. And he's left the club now in first place, a few points clear of Celtic. So he could have stayed and done a couple more seasons, won a couple more trophies. He's in a semi-final as well this season. And it's just, it, is it the right time to, if he is using it as a stepping stone, which I think most people would probably see it as being, could it hinder his chances to come down now? Or would it have just been you know, winning the Premier League, uh, winning the Scottish Premiership, would that have been seen as enough to then manage top four team? Yeah, again, really difficult question. Again, I I think for me, had he stayed there, I think they were obviously on course to win the league again this year. I know a lot of the Scottish fans are now suddenly pointing out the ones that have loved him this week that, oh yeah, he won one trophy in the time he was up here. But I think people forget how far behind they finished Celtic. Mm. Um, in his first season when he took over. We're talking like double figures. Um, I think Brendan Rodgers was still at Celtic at the time. And I can't remember off the top of my head if they ended up winning a, an old firm that first season. I don't think they did when Rodgers was still there. But we're talking double points to winning the league undefeated, conceding only 13 goals. You can't really ask much more of that. You, I mean, we see how rare it is for a team to go undefeated in any league across Europe. PSG haven't managed to do that yet with the amount of money and investment that's gone in there. To do that in an old firm, and believe me, having been up there and knowing what it's like, the level of pressure in Glasgow is massive. It doesn't matter what people think about the rest of the league. The pressure up there, it's you finish above the other team, and if you don't, you failed. So it's it's such a, a, a guilt-edge opportunity. Um, but then I think people also forget as well in the Europa League, two years in a row getting to the last 16 with no no budget. The way it works in Scotland is if you qualify for the Champions League, Amazing. If you don't qualify for the Champions League group stages, you know that you're going to lose two of your best players because that's the only way that they can balance the books financially. So we saw players like Katic and other players that were loaned out this year. Um, probably wanted to keep them on as first team players this year, but knew he couldn't keep hold of them. So I do think it probably is the right time for him to have a go at something else. I don't know how much further he'd take Rangers. I don't think you could realistically see them winning the Europa League because of the level of investment they've got. Certainly can't see them qualifying for the Champions League. But you look at the teams that he beat in the Europa League, getting wins against FC Porto, won a group that Benfica were in, Galatasaray, going out to a really strong Sparta Prague side with the Czech Republic players becoming the the next sort of target country as we see in West Ham. I, I just think he wanted a new challenge. He's going to a club where there's a lot of money. don't think people really fully appreciate the money that the owners have got at the Villa and the way that they've done things. They've just had the planning permission put through for the expansion of the ground, which is going to be insane when it's finally finished so you know it's a big opportunity for him he's got Gary McAllister with him who's been assistant manager at Villa before knows the club did a great job when Gerard Houllier was in charge so I think it's an exciting time it is a gamble but then you could bring in a world-class manager who's world-class on paper but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get the results from them either as you mentioned I mean um, Gerard was very clear in in the press um, I think over the over the summer um, that Rangers were not going to progress without significant investment. I think those were the actual words he used, significant investment. So that that says to me that he's, you know, a manager who who would like to buy players and build a team. So in that vein, um, what do you think are the areas that he would need to focus on at Villa, maybe in his first transfer window to sort of make a mark and get sort of Villa rolling again? 
going to give you the same answer I've given everybody for the last 12 months, and it still drives me mad that we haven't sorted it out. We need a proper, <laughs> combative, strong CDM. And for me, well, it's not just in the philosophy of me playing football on a Sunday. It doesn't matter whether it's charity team or anything else. I think CDM has fast become probably the most interesting and important role in any major club that's successful. Somebody that's box to box, not only offers protection for the for the defence around the edge of the box, but also starts off attacks, not a case of just getting rid of the ball. You look at someone like Kante at Chelsea, I know I'm not saying for a minute we're going for a player of that calibre, but you look at like Glenn Kamara at Rangers, everything that Rangers did well came from him, breaking up playing the edge of the box, starting attacks off, pushing up, getting goals. I do think you'll see the likes of John McGinn um, and Douglas Louise really thrive under Gerrard. I think McGinn has been played out of position since he's been at Villa, as well as he's done. You look at how he plays for, for Scotland when he plays in that cam role, like he did at Hibs. Drops too deep for us because we're so weak defensively at times. And if you can get him pushing up, I think Buendia needs to push out to the right-hand side. Too slight to play in cam in the Prem. Too physical. And I can't see him sort of doing a job in that role. It's going to be really interesting to see how they develop. But for me, uh, sort of a, a Decore, that, that sort of ilk of player. Um, trying to think of some of the other names that we've mentioned recently. I know he plays a little bit further up. We've said like a Basuma. Those are the kind of players that we really need in there because I just feel that we lack that little bit of strength and tenacity in that position. I mean, it's very early days, like Gerald has only been announced announced today on the day of recording. But do you think, in terms of transfers, do you think he'll use his connections to Liverpool? Will he use his connections to Rangers and try and take some of his players with him or, or players that he used to manage back in the youth team of Liverpool? And are there, and are there players that you would like to see perhaps that you've identified that you think would fit in well? Yeah, apart, apart from uh, N'Golo Kante and Basuma and a few others that I quite <laughs> like in there. Um, now, being, being brutally honest, I think with the Rangers hat on, I think Glenn Kamara, very, very good player, incredibly underrated, always looks good in Europe as well. Um, real consistent player. And it'd be interesting to see what he'd do if he was to come down to the Prem. Um, and I know that he said several times, he's alluded to it in interviews, that he sees him as a real key player. Um, one player that we were linked to quite a lot with towards the end of the summer, there was a lot of rumours around Curtis Jones at Liverpool, who is obviously getting more football at Liverpool now. But again, if you've got Steven Gerrard saying that you're going to come in and probably be a starting player week in, week out, is that going to be enough, Paul, to get you away from a Liverpool side that's obviously massively successful, but you know you're not going to get those opportunities every single week? So that's somebody else. There's been a lot of rumours today already saying about the likes of sort of, will he bring in Ryan Kent because he loves him? Will he do this, that and the other? The only other one I could see him bring in from Rangers, and it would solve a massive issue in terms of set pieces, is uh, James Tavernier. Because, again, for somebody who plays at right-back, I know we've got Matt Cash, but it's whether you could move one of them to the left. You look at how many goals he scores from right-back. Yeah, it's the Scottish League, as everybody keeps saying. But his set-piece record is phenomenal. Um, loves a strike from range, which we don't really do a lot of. So, yeah, I, I can see him using his connections. And I can't see us being able to spend stacks in January because January is notoriously difficult to bring anybody in. Well, with that being said, in terms of, OK, we get past the transfer window and we're going to finish for the rest of the season. What is your, let's say, expectation and what is your hope for where the season's going to finish, both league position and, and cup runs? And then going a little bit forward, um, what could you imagine happening under Gerard's reign? I think I've heard anything on the radio and at school from some really excited kids that I teach that we're going to finish anywhere from between 4th to 17th. So it's going to be a <laughs> interesting end to the season. I think personally, looking at where we're at the moment, we've got to be brutally honest with ourselves. It, it is a relegation battle as it currently stands. There's no way of looking at it any other way. We're like one or two places off, a couple of points off. And the way the defence has been leaking goals, it's a massive, massive worry and a massive issue. 
But I think if we were to sort of match where we finished last season due to the where we're at after, you know, 10, 11 games, I'd be quite happy with that for this season. I think people have got to be realistic. I know Gabby had Bonner Hall this morning on Talk Sport decided that, you know, oh, they could make sixth place. I've got no idea where he's got that idea from. So he's clearly not learned much since he's left football. But um, I think for me, finishing anywhere around sort of 10th, 11th, 12th, I think just to get his feet under the table, get to know the team, give himself time to understand what he wants to work with next season. And I think the big one as well, it's not so much about the players coming in. It's getting rid of some of the deadwood. We've got players there that have been there an awful long time now that have had opportunities. I hate speaking ill of him. Keenan Davis, good example. Always seems to be that player that's on the edge of getting into the first team, gets injured, drops out. And this has been going on for about four or five years now. And if you really want to make it in the top flight and you want to make it in that top 10, you've got to start cutting players like that. As much as we love him, it, it's one of those. Cool. And uh, what do we think then? Um, sort of how does the, the future of Villa look? You said the owners are always uh, aiming upwards. You mentioned Martin O'Neill earlier, and I, I remember watching that that Villa team and absolutely loving that Villa team. I mean, uh, that was a really good team to watch. They played good football they, and, and they were a damn strong team who qualified, I think, for UEFA Cup a, a, a few times, I think. Is that sort of the hope for the next few years, you think? I mean, last season, you all, almost it seemed like you almost got Europe last season. We're in the running for it. Even though you finished 11th in the end, it seemed like you were in the running for Europe for a long time. Um, and the 11 was sort of rather disappointing, if anything. Um, so, yeah. What does the future look like for Villa, you think? I think, as you say, last season, it was a season of what could have been. We look at where West Ham are. And again, I'm going to mention him yet again, but you look back at when Grealish got injured and that's where the slide started. As soon as Grealish dropped out of the team, we went from being sort of top four, top five. I can't remember the exact position we were in off the top of my head. But then went on a run of form that was, you know, bottom three material. And it was only when he came back in that we started to pick back up. So if he had have stayed fit, it just shows that I don't think there was another player or another team in the league that relied on one player so much. And I think losing him probably cost us a chance of making Europe and then going from there. But as I said before, having met the owners and knowing oh, it's sort of the backing and stuff, I don't think, again, for a lot of people who don't support Villa, I don't think they'll understand the numbers in terms of, first off, you've got two billionaires owning the club, combined wealth of over eight and a half billion pounds. Um, they've just had planning permission to, or they've just submitted planning permission to take on a new MLS team based in Las Vegas. So obviously the finance and the wealth behind that is massive. Name of the team as well, Las Vegas Villains. So it shows that there's obviously connections to what they're doing with Villa and they want to sustain that and build it. In terms of capacities, we're, we're selling out pretty much every week. We sell out away every week, away from home. Um, there's actually a waiting list now of over 18,000 people for a season ticket because they cap them at 30,000. Well, the stadium only holds 42,000 at the moment. Planning permission has been given to expand the stadium to 62,500 by 2031. You know, they, these are people that want to do the right thing and they're doing it in the right about way. Um, they've invested in areas within the city similar to what Man City have done. Um, there's two massive multi-complex academies being built within the Birmingham City area, not right by the ground, but around different areas in the city to, to really build it up to be a club that the whole city want to get behind, obviously, apart from the, the team in blue down the road. But with the money they've got, the success story they've got, Wes Edens himself winning the NBA last year with Milwaukee Bucks. Similar story, old-fashioned team, um, loved by many over there, won the championship once. All of a sudden, he's got like the most valuable asset in basketball at the moment in Yanis. And he's you know success, successful in everything that he does. So I just kind of feel like in the next year or two, European football is what they want. Perslow alluded, alluded to it this week when he said his thanks to Dean Smith. He said that you know we were disappointed that we didn't maintain our challenge of getting into Europe. 
So that's what they want to do. I remember when I first met them, they said within five years, they wanted to be, to, to be knocking on the door of top four. So it's going to take some serious investment and some consistency. And hopefully we get that under Gerard. Having ambitions is one thing, but you do have to back it up with uh, the way you build uh, the club. And I think Gerard, you know, you saw that, I mean, taking over Rangers at the time seemed like a poison chalice because it seemed they were so far behind Celtic, but he built them up. So he he's ready to stick around and do the dirty work and build a team that can challenge. So honestly, I, I think he's he's an he's he's an absolute coup for for Villa. I think they've played their cards cards absolutely right there to get him in. It'll be interesting to see. Um, I think that probably brings us to the end uh, of of uh, our pod right now. Are there were there any points that we didn't cover about Villa that you that you what that you feel like you absolutely have to make? No, to be honest, I think I think that pretty much sums it up well. Really, I think you know it, it's another period of transition. I hate that phrase when people go, "Oh, the the club's going through a period of transition." I feel like we've been going through transition since I started going down the club in 1994. But I just kind of feel like this is something different now. It, it, it's a really young manager. I love the fact that managers are getting the opportunity at a younger age now. Like I don't play a lot myself. I manage the side that I do. I know it's not anywhere near like proper level or whatever. But I'm obsessed with management, tactics, all that sort of stuff. And seeing so many youthful managers coming through. I think this is a really exciting opportunity for the Villa. And with, again, such a predominantly young fan base with people that have grown up you know, like in the likes of Gerard Lampard. I think it's going to be a really exciting time. And let's say John Terry gets in as well. It's going to be an exciting time for the Premier League. Absolutely. And uh, lastly, uh, thank you very much for coming on, Nick. It's been an absolute pleasure, of course. Um, was there anything else you you wanted to plug or do we want to just uh, re-mention the, the things we mentioned earlier again? Yeah, I think obviously just the website. So um, I write for avillafan.com. You can get us on Twitter as well. I think we're about 16,500 followers. Um, and then aside from that, the stuff that I do for charity, if you want to give Nightingale FC a follow, um, we do try and play around the UK. I know next year we've got some quite big plans in terms of travelling around. So if we're ever in the area and you fancy coming down, we'd love to have you down there. Check the Twitter page out. You can check all the other socials that we've got. We've got a, a club shop with the shirts that we've got where 20% of that goes straight to the Royal Orthopaedic Hospital. Um, so, yeah, just yeah, get following and get involved in the obviously the Cup, which is the National Affinity Cup. Wonderful. And again, that website, everybody, is avillafan.com. We have been told uh, to make sure that we get that absolutely right. avillafan.com. Find them there. It's been great talking to you, Nick. Thank you very much. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Nick. Hey, guys. Mildy here. So that was our fantastic interview. But as promised, there was also a fantastic voice message left for us from one of our biggest fans, Sasha. Take it away, Sasha. Hey, guys. So, yeah, Stevie Gerrard, I guess. Um, I guess from the options that were available, he's the best choice. Um, I'm still not convinced he's a, a massive upgrade to Dino. Um, maybe not at all. And I guess they should have given him uh, a couple more games to turn things around. But, uh, yeah, that's where we're at now. Um, my hope is that he uses the three years now to uh, get closer to his actual goal, which is probably to be the successor of Klopp at Liverpool. And if he gets us two seasons uh, with good results, that should be okay. And at the end of the day, I'm just happy it's not Frank Lampard that's still on. All right, take care. The reason I can't believe it, right, is because 180 is must make him one of the most capped players of all time. I didn't even realise that... I'm, I swear no, I swear no. Melford was gone through 200, has he? 
They haven't. The most capped is uh, Ho Chin An for, for Malaysia with 195. I mean, it's honestly, I'm still outraged. Uh, but I think I'm mostly outraged about the second question, if I'm honest, Mason. That, that's one, that one is going to drive me up the wall right. for, for right, the next guys, few weeks. Right, guys, I'm going to have to cut you off there. We've been arguing about this for an entire week now. Welcome here as once again to Anorak versus Anorak. We entered well, today. That was, a, that was a week ago now. He, he probably is out to about 190 caps now at the current yeah. rate. We enter today's round. It's the 10th edition of Anorak vs Anorak, if you can believe it. We've been going for 10 weeks strong. The pod is still around. This feature is still around. And Louis is back once again. Louis, five foot up. How are you feeling? Feeling absolutely great. I'm, uh, I'm feeling like Gary McAllister in the 2003 UEFA <laughs> Cup final. Don't quote me on the year. Yeah, I'm feeling absolutely on top of the world. How are you feeling, Nick? A, a new emotion for you to contend with. I mean... No, it's a it's a, a very similar emotion to how I felt when uh, Frank Lampard got his goal cancelled out in uh, 2010 versus Germany. Um, I feel cheated, if anything, cheated about those last two rounds. Okay, well, it, it seems like Millsy feels like Messi did in his 2014 World Cup final, and without remembering, <laughs> do you know, Millsy, do you know what happened in 2014? Just to clarify. I can name you the least capped players in the England squad that year, but apparently I cannot name. Apparently it's a challenge for me to name the finalists. Right. So apparently the fastest finger first question went down so well last week. We're going to do it again today. Question one is fastest finger first. Shout your name. Millsy, shout your name. OK, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. You've gone further into the skullduggery. You've chosen the round that we have already classified benefits the guy that you brought onto the pod. I, I see it. I see it happening. I went three, two up and you guys got scared. You thought we can't have this. We need to figure out a way to, to, to get around this. Right. I, I will clarify the fastest finger is only for this first question. The actually, no, it's going to be for two. The topic this week is football stadiums. And the first question, shout out your name is which team has the largest stadium outside of the premier league in England? Millsy. Millsy? Sheffield Wednesday. Sheffield Wednesday is incorrect. Can I ask a question before I guess? You can ask. If I get it wrong, can we kind of pass the baton between us until someone gets it right? Yeah, why not? We'll do a okay, few okay, guesses okay. if you don't get okay, it. I like this. Okay, outside the Premier League, biggest stadium. <laughs> Good job I asked that question. I'm drawing an absolute... Oh, Louis, obviously Louis. <laughs> Nottingham Forest. It is not Nottingham Forest. Millsy. Uh, championship teams, championship teams, championship teams. Uh, ooh, uh, uh, West Brom. Incorrect. Louis. And for those listening That's... on podcast format or watching on YouTube format, for all the for all the abuse I got last week for a fastest finger first question, <laughs> look at these two anoraks struggling this week. Louis, what's your answer? Sunderland. Sunderland with a stadium of light is correct. 49,000. 49,000. 49,000. League one, but they are the largest stadium outside of the Premier League. So Louis takes a 1-0 lead today. It, it flashed through my mind halfway through that you might be absolutely trolling us and Wembley was the answer or something. <laughs> Mason, um, just to clarify, if it had just been, you know, first answer, who's the biggest, who would have won? Yeah. Who had the bigger one out of Sheffield Wednesday or whatever... Wrong answer, I said, Louis. I said Forest City Ground. I think it's got to be you, Nick, surely. Okay, so Sheffield Wednesday. I thought Sheffield, I thought Sheffield Wednesday was correct when you said it. 
Sheffield Wednesday, Hillsborough is 39,732. And what's the other answer? City Ground, Nottingham Forest. City Ground, 30,445. The Sheffield uh, Wednesday then have the, the, the largest in the in the championship? E no, they don't. But we can't go into any more questions on that because we've got more questions about football stadiums coming right up. Fastest finger first again. Shout out your name. Which team plays at the Pride Park Stadium? Millsy. Millsy? It's Derby County. It is Derby County. It ties it up at 1-1. And I'm guessing that might be the biggest stadium in the championship, how, given how quickly you cut us off in the, in the last conversation. It's actually not. Okay. But we're going to go to the, to the largest stadium in the championship for this final round, where we're going to play a little game of higher or lower. We have a list of five stadiums here, and I want you to put these... Actually, I want you to write down, sorry, lower or higher. Okay, so the first stadium is the largest stadium in the championship. It's Riverside Stadium, Middlesbrough. I'm not going to say capacity. And the next stadium is Carrow Road, Norwich. So is Norwich smaller or larger than Riverside Stadium, Middlesbrough? I'm wondering if you're thinking the same, same thing as me now, Nick. Yeah, I am. This is another sort of question number two, like last time, you know, he's given us the largest one and then asked if another one is smaller or, or higher. But anyway, for, um, those, for those listening correctly, the largest stadium of the championship compared to a Premier League stadium. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good shout. Good shout. Fair enough, Mace. I take it back. So, <laughs> Sorry, I forgot Norwich were even in the Premier League. I mean, they're such, such nobodies, uh, to be honest. Do write in Norwich hearers, please. And these, this, this, this is only one point available for this question. In fact, well, it's one all anyway, so we'll we'll add up one point for each correct answer here. Okay, so if you want to raise up your answers, higher or lower? Norwich I said lower. 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 Both said lower. Lower is correct. Carrow Road, Norwich is lower than Riverside Stadium. You're still tied. The next stadium is Stadium MK of MK Dons. Higher or lower than Riverside or Carrow Road? Carrow Road. We're moving on. That's a good question. Okay. If you can reveal your answers. I've gone lower again. Same. You've both gone lower. The answer is higher. Stadium MK is larger than Carrow Road. You guys are still tied. The next stadium is Elland Road of Leeds. That's quite a quick one. Higher. And you've both said higher, which is correct. You are still tied. The next stadium, which should be the last one, is St. Mary's, Southampton. Okay, if you can reveal your answers. Higher. We've got a difference of opinion. The camel's back is about to be broken. Louis has said lower. Millsy has said higher. So we started today with a Riverside Stadium, Middlesbrough, 34,000. Carrow Road, Norwich, 27,000. Stadium MK Dons, 30,500. Elland Road, 37,890. And I feel like Southampton is like early 40s. Surely not. St. Mary Southampton is 32,505. Louis takes it on the final question of the day and is somehow completely turned things round. He's now into a 6-4 lead after 10 rounds. Louis, be proud, man. 
Oh, great. I felt absolutely great. Well, the, the, of I course, we've got to count in there. We've got to count in there the two stolen rounds that we've had uh, the past couple of weeks. So really, we're on equal footing and it's 4-4. Let's be honest. <laughs> I've got a bonus question for you guys. Do you want? Oh, here we go. I've just here we go. My I've chance to take down the question master. Let, let, let's let's see how this goes. Come on, then, Louis. Let's... More of a point of interest, I guess. I've just I've actually just bought some tickets for a football game at Stadium MK. Do you know what the event is? A, fo- a football match. It's a football match. Yes. At Stadium MK. Are Bournemouth going there? <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be an anti-climax if that was the answer. <laughs> to be honest. Is it? Is it one of these inv- like strange invitational tournaments where the sponsor just makes up a tournament of four teams? Or is it a no. legends? Is it a legends game? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. No. It's to be honest, it, I thought it might. This might be an interesting question to ask because it's it's a big deal, I'd say. But it's, I think right now it's still going under the radar. But I think, I think when it comes around, this will this will be an actual big deal. Which is that so the women's Euros is is hosted in England next summer. Twenty twenty two women's Euros is in England. So like early release tickets are on sale. So I've got MK Brighton, Southampton, Brentford. And I, and I think at the moment, it's like, you know, people are still recovering from Euro 2021 fever. They're not ready for the next tournament. But I reckon an international tournament hosted in England, I think there'll be a pretty big deal next summer. And the England women's team does tend to get quite a bit of momentum behind it once the tournament rolls around. Very nice. Well, we'll try and get some we'll try and get some audio equipment to you, Louis. You can rec- you can be our reporter in the ground reporting directly to the Millsy and Mason's Football Hootsanani audience. I'll, I'll do my best. Millsy, what kind of social medias would we share those reports on? Uh, yes, uh, thank you thank you for asking, Mr. Mason. Um, you can find us at uh, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Um, all of those are .com slash Millsy and Mason, um, or just Google Millsy and Mason's Football Hootsanani. We're very please, if you Google us, uh, it gets us higher in the rankings and you still find our fantastic content. Thanks, everyone. Indeed. Thank you very much, Louis. Thank you, guys. So, Millsy, the last ever edition of Anorak versus Anorak, at least for now, maybe it will return in the future, but it is (laughs) over. We've had 10 episodes, 10 editions. It was a close fought contest. But it has finished 6-4 to Louis. How do you feel? Um, well, firstly, humiliated that he has uh, smashed me in my own backyard. I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> that, that sounded weird, but I'm going to leave it in. In your own um, back door? He, he smashed my back door in. Um, <laughs> oh. Mason has spat his beer everywhere. Gone everywhere. But I think that I think saying that is still enough for us to leave the explicit sticker out. Uh, I, I, I'm actually getting a visual representation of, of the uh, beer spilled out here. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad to see the back of it, to be honest. It, it was getting a bit old with Louis uh, basically being given the answers every week uh, by you before so that he could uh, beat me at my own game. But let's not go into that right now. Um, not again. Uh, I just want to tell the hearers that we do have something in the planning for what to do next in terms of quiz style segments. So if you're into quiz style segments, then keep your ears to the ground or 
to the earphones or wh- however you listen to our <laughs> podcast. Keep an eye out because we've got something big coming up, we hope. Yeah, and quite often when I'm walking down the street, I see people with their ear on the ground and I assume that they are listening to the Hootenanny. Yeah, you assume that they're think that they're listening to Anorak versus Anorak at that point, yeah. aren't you? It was a great episode today, Mason, with with uh, Nick from avillafan.com as well. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. It, it's so great to get an insight into the actual, you know, full-time fans' view of things at their own club because they, they just they just know so much more than than what we get in in the g- generic press, you know. Definitely, yeah, I'm loving it. It's our third uh, consecutive episode of speaking about specific clubs following Arsenal and Newcastle. Um, so I guess, dear hearers, let us know what, what sort of episode you're enjoying on the Hootenanny. We've done interviews, we've done social media manager um, of foreign clubs, we've done highlighting Premier League clubs, and we've just done random rubbish talks, really, haven't we? So let us know what you're enjoying and we can continue to, to do it. Absolutely. We are here for you, dear hearers. So <laughs> let us know what you want to hear. We're just having a laugh doing it, so we're happy to talk about anything, really. Um, but it, it just depends on what 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 the people want. Mm, indeed, we are people. People. We are people pleasers. I'm going to stick with people. People. We're people of the people. On that note, I think we should probably end the episode. Thanks very much for for being here with me again, Mason. Uh, it's been a blast, and uh, I can't wait to see who we're talking to next week. Indeed, the big number twenty next week is going to be a big one. Yeah, we should probably get talking to people on what we're actually going to do for that. Yeah, we should organise that one. Yeah, we should probably get on that. While we do that, dear hearers, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, uh, as I've mentioned before. Listen to our back episodes and get in touch with us. Let us know what what we're doing well, what we're not doing so well and, and, and give us your thoughts. We want to hear from you. Cheers, Mason. Cheers, Millie. Till next time.